In Marvel's Black Panther, a key theme in the plot is what the leaders of Wakanda should do with the rich resources of their kingdom when faced with the mounting problems in all the nations around them. Historically, the kings had chosen to stay hidden, it's revealed, turning a blind eye to the needs of the wider world. In an emotionally climatic scene, T'Challa, who's the Black Panther if you haven't seen the movie, he's hovering somewhere between life and death after a run-in with the bad guy, and he has a a conversation with a group of his ancestors in the afterlife, and he accuses them of wrongdoing. His father says, I chose our people, to which T'Challa responds, all of you were wrong to turn your backs on the rest of the world. And he then returns to earth to try to chart a new course for the people of Wakanda, doing what should have been done from the beginning. Now, last week, we were introduced to a Roman centurion named Cornelius, a remarkable man. He was a devout man, had received a message from an angel as God began to accomplish a pivotal work in human history, the opening of the church to the Gentile world. It wasn't a new idea coming out of heaven. It wasn't a rebrand of the gospel or a, or a pivot in the business plan or anything like that. It had been the plan from the beginning that through God's people, the hope of redemption would go out to the entire world, uh, that through Abraham, all people would be blessed. Sadly, the Jews had turned their backs on the Gentile nations, and now the Lord was going to finally build the bridge of the gospel from the church to all people everywhere. Last week, we saw the groundwork being laid on the Gentile side. Tonight, we see the other side of the bridge being built as the Lord interacts with the apostle Peter. When we look at the two representatives, Peter and Cornelius, Peter representing Jewish Christianity and uh, the Jewish people, Cornelius representing the Gentile world, It's obvious that it's the Gentile who is further from God, right? If you said, which one of these people is further from God? Well, it's the Gentile. After all, he's not born again. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. Yet in this effort, in this work that God is accomplishing, it's Peter that has the longer trip to take. Though he lived with Jesus for three and a half years, though he was a leader in the church, though he was a preacher of Pentecost, a miracle worker, one of the 12, Tonight's text shows us something really remarkable. The apostle was wrong. He was wrong in an area of his faith, wrong in his thoughts concerning the Gentile world, and wrong about what he thought the Lord would and wouldn't do. Wonderfully, we see that his wrongness in this area didn't make him unusable in the Lord's hands, didn't make him distasteful to the Lord, didn't make the Lord think, man, I'm just done with this guy, let's cast him off. Instead, we see that God was going to lead Peter out of this error and into a greater experience of grace, one that would cause him to grow and have direct impact on the world, one that impacts your life and my life as well. So glad that the Lord did that. Just as Christ was drawing Cornelius into truth, so he was drawing Peter into greater truth, greater grace, greater intimacy with his king as well. This episode in Peter's life Uh, shouldn't be something that we knock him for. It's just the reality. He was just wrong in this uh, situation. And it reveals the fact that all of us have room for growth in our understanding of grace in our walk with the Lord. 
If we took a look at an assessment of Peter's understanding of God's plan for the Gentiles, or even let's remove Gentiles from the equation for a minute. If we took a a look at Peter's understanding in this time, we're about 10 years into the life of the church, and said, hey, Peter, let's take a look at your understanding of where the Levitical code fits into Christianity, into the gospel, into the, the church age. We have to come to the conclusion that he and many of the other leaders and followers in Jerusalem were just wrong. They didn't understand. They hadn't applied what Jesus had taught them uh, in this regard. And the Lord is going to lead them out of that. But remember who Peter is. He's Peter. He's a leader in the church, the preacher of Pentecost, one of the three dear friends of Jesus Christ who lived with him day in and day out for three and a half years. He will be a writer of scripture, right? And so Peter is not someone to be looked down upon. I mean, he's a great inspiration to us. He's a great hero for us. And so it's wonderful that we see his example that even a man like Peter had room for growth in his understanding of grace, room for growth in his walk with the Lord, room for growth in his understanding of what God had taught, what God had revealed in his, world, in his word. And it shouldn't surprise us that every Christian has room for growth. And it shouldn't discourage us either. It's the reality of following God in a body of flesh. Now, one day we'll be finished. One day we'll be fully sanctified, fully glorified. Until then, we need the Lord to lead us forward, not only in our callings, right? Not only in service to lead us into service or lead us into ministry, but we need the Lord to lead us forward in our understanding. And as we see with Peter, it's possible that there might be some barrier that we don't even recognize that is keeping us from something the Lord desires to do in and through us. And we're also gonna see that God's leading, even of mature, seasoned Christians who have a direct line with the Holy Spirit, even then, God's leading is not always as crystal clear as we would like it to be. Uh, And that should be an encouragement to us. We know from experience that God's leading is not always super clear, super um, uh, evident, like here's exactly what I'm supposed to do and each step of what I'm supposed, of how I'm supposed to do it. But we see here, even a guy who's going to have a personal conversation with the Lord, personal words from the Holy Spirit, even he is not going to have the kind of clarity that he was hoping for that day, at least not in part. And so we know that from experience. It's helpful to see it in example of scripture too. What we can be sure of is that God does want to lead us on more and more into his grace, more and more into his peace, his truth. And at the same time, he wants to use us to minister to a needy world along the way. So we're going to pick up the story in verse nine. It says there, the next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. Luke is building anticipation in our minds, particularly if you're just reading this through from start to finish. We move from watching the hurried, urgent, through-the-night quest of three Gentiles from Caesarea, and, and the camera pans over to Peter, as it were, unaware of what's coming down the road, unaware of what lays uh, ahead of him. He's about to set off on a quest, but he doesn't know it yet. He's relaxing on the rooftop, looking over the sea in a time of quiet prayer with the Lord. And man, it's amazing how quickly life can change, right? We know that firsthand right now. Who would have thought six or seven days ago that the things that are going on in the world and in our actual personal lives right now would have ever been a part of our experience, but how quickly life can change on a small scale or on even a great scale. 
And so Peter's planning lunch. She doesn't know that a completely new era of ministry and history is about to begin uh, through what the Lord wants to do in his life. Not to mention that the Lord is going to require something very challenging of him. Before moving on, it's worth mentioning that both of these remarkable interactions with God for Peter and Cornelius happened during a prayer time. Cornelius was at prayer. Peter was at prayer. And so as we endeavor to grow spiritually or as we plan on going along with the Lord who wants us to grow spiritually, growing in our prayer life should always be a priority. And that's why we try more and more to prioritize prayer as a group here at Calvary because prayer matters, prayer as a group matters, and a rich, abundant, uh, meaningful prayer life is essential to a growing spirituality and a growing relationship with Christ Jesus. Verse 10 says, Then he became hungry, he wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. The term Luke used here for hungry seems to indicate intense hunger from the resources that I uh, referenced. But in this case, God was going to put the spiritual thing first. The Lord decided that at this point in Peter's life, Peter could wait to eat. Now, sometimes the Lord has us forego physical things in order to accomplish spiritual things. Not always, but sometimes. That principle is perhaps most emphasized or most highlighted in the story of the healing of the paralytic let through the roof of the house. There at the feet of Jesus, obviously in desperate need of physical attention, the thing that seemed to be his greatest need was to be healed of his paralysis. And what did the Lord say? He said, your sins are forgiven. And he left them there, paralyzed on the mat for a little while. Must have been a huge letdown to him and to, uh, to the men who led him through the roof. Of course, they had faith. And of course, in the long run, you know, you want your sins forgiven more than you want to be able to walk, right? But they had brought him there for a particular reason, and that was so that the healer could heal him, heal his physical frame. And yet the Lord left him there on the mat and had an interaction and a teachable moment there with the Pharisees concerning Jesus Christ and his deity and his ability to forgive sins, that most essential thing, but he left him on the mat for a little bit. He, he said, you know, this paralytic can stay paralyzed for a little bit longer. And of course, he did address his physical need as well. But sometimes the Lord prioritizes the spiritual need over the physical need. Uh, of course, in that case, he was ultimately healed. But the spiritual work came first in that situation. And you know, that's not always how the Lord does things. We're gonna see that in just a moment. But sometimes, and we see it here with Peter, he was hungry, really hungry. He needed food. And that's a genuine, legitimate need. But the Lord decided that it could wait while something spiritual was being done. Verse 11 says, he saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the sky. Peter as an individual and many other Jewish Christians like him needed to understand that God had done away with the dietary restrictions from the Mosaic law. Now, the Lord had taught that outright back in the gospels. He talked about how the things that go into your mouth cannot defile you, right? I mean, he said it plainly and outright, but they really hadn't gotten the message yet. The average Jewish Christian, the 12, you know, these different people, they were still following the Mosaic code other than the animal sacrifice, it seems. 
Now, this would be an issue that Peter struggled with, not only here, but later in life too. There's that uh, sort of shocking uh, retelling where Paul said, yeah, by the way, remember that time I withstood Peter to his face in front of everybody and said, you refuse to eat with Gentiles when the Jews are around. And so we empathize with Peter, right? He, he, he's a good guy. He loves the Lord. I think he would be friends with us. I, I think we would really like Peter and like being around Peter and want to minister with Peter. Got no beef with Peter. But this is clearly something that he struggled with. But the wider point of the vision was that the church, which is represented here by the sheet, is a heavenly work. And in the church, there is no exclusion. Every race, every ethnicity, every social class, every background, everyone is invited to join in the work that the Lord is doing before that time when the church will be caught back up into heaven in the rapture. On that sheet were clean animals and creepy animals, the royal lion, the gentle lamb, the off-putting hyena. Think of your favorite animal and your least favorite animal. I was looking up for fun, ugliest animals earlier. You've seen the blobfish? That poor thing. If you haven't seen a blobfish, man, mark out some time on your calendar. You can look at it right now if you want. The blobfish may be the ugliest creature ever in all of God's wonderful creation. Uh, it's just objectively ugly. And that's the idea here, creeping things, nice things, not so nice things. Uh, it, but they're all included. Every, every kind of person, every race, every background, Everyone's invited. There are animals you like to look at and have around. There are lots of animals on there you don't want to look at and don't want to have around. But you know, in the church, the Lord sees all of us as equal, right? You know, later in the epistles, we'll learn, yeah, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no barbarian. There's no, it's all just the children of God. All are seen as worthwhile to the Lord. All are part of the family, and you know what I noticed? I was thinking about this. The animals weren't killing each other on the sheet. You had lions, you had creeping things, you had birds, you know, you had every kind of different animal. And what were they doing? They were hanging out side by side, living together, finding a way, as it were, to not tear each other apart. And that would be a, just a good devotional thought for us as the church to remember that we are put together to be unified, to love one another, to coexist together in a way that honors God. Verse 13 says, then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. In your Bible, these words may be in red, they are in mine. It's not explicitly stated that Jesus was speaking, but it seems as though Peter recognized the voice as his Lord's. Now, the command is simple. Get on up and devour. You're hungry, go eat. Now, Peter was being led out of legalism in this scene. He's being prepared for his work with the unclean Gentiles, but it did sort of give me a devotional thought that we, we want to be people who are hungry for souls, right? We want to be hungry for souls. It doesn't fit in perfectly with what we're seeing here. These animals are already on the sheet. I get that, but you know, I know I need the Lord to work more in my heart and help me to develop a growing hunger for souls, to go out and, and kill, as it were. And, and, and bring people onto that sheet. The Lord has sent us out, right, to go and be fishers of men, to go and catch fish. You know, I mean, maybe the Lord would say to us, hey, rise up and go cast your nets. Rise up and go bait a hook. Rise up and go out there and, and, and see how you could bring some fish in. And so I know this image was a good motivator for me. Maybe uh, it, it was just for me, but I, I enjoyed that. Verse 14 says, no, Lord, Peter said, for I've never eaten anything common and ritually unclean. 
All the commentators are pretty quick to point out that you can't say both no and Lord, but the truth is Peter kind of did a lot as we look at his uh, testimony in scripture through the gospels and through the book of Acts. Maybe not a lot, but definitely three or four times in the record of the New Testament where he outright said no to the Lord, not even counting his denials, or he would say not so Lord or no Lord. And in reality, you know what we do too? It's interesting, there's, there's a, a branch of, of theology or there's a perspective on things, and perhaps you've heard it before, where it's called lordship theology. And lordship theology is summed up in a very simple phrase that gets thrown around a lot. That's not the worst thing in the world, but the, they, you'll hear sometimes old time preachers say, if he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all. And the idea is if, lord, if the lord's not lord of everything in your life, who knows if you're even a Christian? Peter was saying no to the Lord, and he's an apostle. He's one of the 12. And in reality, if we are honest, we say no to the Lord as well. Now, maybe we don't say no, Lord, as often, right? But I, I think we're prone to say, I can't, Lord. I can't. You've asked me to do this in your word. You're leading me to do this. I can't. I can't witness to that person. I can't forgive that person. I can't be at peace in this uncertainty. I can't not be anxious. I can't love my wife the way Christ loves the church. I can't give sacrificially. I can't, Lord. God gives us many commands and mandates in his word. He gives us the power to to carry all of those things out. And so when we think I can't, it's the exact same as Peter saying, no, Lord. He's just saying, I can't do that. And frankly, he has kind of a good reason that he gives to the Lord. He says, hey, I can't do that. And so that doesn't give us license. It just helps us be honest with ourselves. And you know, there are a lot of times that we look at what the Lord has told us to do in his word, what the Lord is leading us to do by his spirit. And it is easy for us to say, I I can't. That's the same as us just saying no to the Lord. And the truth is, We need to stop and and humble ourselves and say, okay, is is Jesus Christ my king or is he not my king? That's a really important question. And we need to realize that if we get to a point where we are saying to the Lord, no, or if we are saying, I can't, we are in rebellion against our king. We recoil when we see Peter say, no, Lord, and commentators, quick, how dare you say that? And he did this and he did that and this and, you know, and the truth is, you know, we have rebel hearts too. And we need to recognize that and say, Lord, man, the, the spirit is willing. My flesh is weak. Lord, strengthen me and help me. I want to obey. I want to go your way. Psalm 119, right? All about the word and how it works in our lives and how a person lives, you know, most fully and completely in their spiritual lives and in their regular lives by following after the word. But again and again in Psalm 119, what does the writer say? He says, Lord, teach me. Instruct me according to your word. Help me follow your commands. Make me love your commands. That's a good, honest assessment. This idea, sometimes I hear, and I listen to these guys, sometimes I hear these guys who are lordship preachers. If he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all. Then guess what? He's not lord at all for any of us anywhere, right? Does anybody here have the an honest feeling that I follow Jesus Christ in every single way perfectly. Everything that he's asked me to do, I do to the fullest extent. That's horrifying. And so 
we want to see this example of Peter realize that this is a propensity, not just in one man, it's a propensity in all of us and recognize that, yeah, I don't, I don't actually want to say I can't to the Lord. I don't want to say no to the Lord. I want to recoil when I say that, not just when I read about someone else saying that. Now, in this case, though, Peter told the Lord, he said, no, I, I can't obey what you just said because if I do, I won't be properly religious. Now, it sounds sort of silly when we hear it like that, but Christians and churches tend to get hung up on man-made rules and traditions all the time sometimes choosing the tradition over God's leading. In the histories of revival and great awakenings, there's always those who won't accept what God is doing. They say, that's all wrong. If you read about, you know, like the great awakening uh, in, in early America, there was a whole faction of, of Christians and churches who said, all of that's wrong, all of that's bad. We shouldn't be listening to any of that stuff that's going on. We just need to stick with this, the way that we do things. In the meantime, you're saying, well, look it up in, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards, New England and Whitfield. Look at all these people getting saved. No, 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 no. That's not how God does things. He does things this way through our ways. Our church is super dead and no one comes here and everybody's, you know, just following a man-made tradition, but ignore all of that. And it's sad that that happens. It's true that uh, people are sometimes choose tradition and choose religious legalism over the actual leading of God. Dave Hunt, in his autobiographical book, Confessions of a Heretic, great book, by the way, if you can get a hold of it, make it a point. He tells of these great things God was doing in his own life, miraculous things, really dramatic uh, miracles that, were, that are verifiable, right? Really neat things. And there's a great deal of resistance in his own heart to it at first. He grew up very uh, conservative and didn't think that kind of stuff happened anymore as a Christian. And there was also a lot of resistance coming from his very conservative denomination as he was going back to his church and saying, hey, this is what the Lord is doing and look and look and look and look. And along the way, there's just a lot of resistance. No, 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 Dave, we don't like that you're saying this. It sounds like you're getting into weird stuff. And, and then he would be saying, yeah, but here's what the Lord's doing through me. And here's how people are getting saved through, through the you know, experiences that God has given me and all these sorts of things. Sort of con uh, culminates one day when he's having a prayer meeting at his church. He's a leader at his church. And they're having a prayer meeting. And then the Holy Spirit falls on their local congregation in an undeniable way on everybody in sort of a revival Pentecost type way. And after that, the ultimate result was that Dave, a leader of their church, was excommunicated. Get this guy out of here because we can't have that happening. This is the way we do things. It's very sad, but it's all too common. And so it's the same thing that Peter's saying here. Now, here's a generic example of how even today, people who are Christians and who love the Lord say, no, 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 we, we've got to choose the religious legalistic thing instead of what God has revealed and asked us to do. In the Bible, we are told that we have liberty in Christ and that no one can judge you for celebrating or not celebrating certain days. And yet every November, December, there are Christians and traditions who say you cannot be a Christian and celebrate Christmas, right? The Bible says outright that you can and that no one can judge you concerning days. Or the Bible says outright, let no one judge you concerning Sabbaths. And yet there are still many groups and traditions and churches and, and theologies that say that all Christians must observe the Sabbath in some way. Those rigid legalistic positions are just like the one Peter is demonstrating here. And God has gone to great lengths to usher his people into grace, that we are free from the law 
that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and now we operate in grace. Verse 15 says, again, a second time a voice said to him, what God has made clean, you must not call common. You know, God does what God wants to do. God does what he wants. Now, he always acts in truth and consistency. He always acts according to his nature and his character. He does not contradict himself, but he is the decider. He is the definer. He is the director. And our part is to discover what his desire is, what his will is. And then we fall into line with that. He is not subject to our understanding or our sensibilities. We are to subject ourselves to his leading. Verse 16, this happened three times. And then the object was taken up into heaven. There was emphasis, right? Three times, but not clarity. We're gonna see Peter pondering, deeply perplexed. He's wondering, he does not know what this is all about. He doesn't get what all this means yet. And so the question is, why not just be explicit and clear with Peter the way the angel had been with Cornelius? Why not be as explicit and clear with Peter as he had been with Saul of Tarsus, where he said, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen. We can't understand all the ways of God, but we remember that as Christians, we are invited to meditate on him. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to apply our hearts and our minds to him. He wants us to think and to listen and to inquire and to wait on him. The disciples experienced a little bit of this when he would tell parables and then the Lord would wait until they came and said, hey, what's that about? I'm gonna spend some more time with you and, and have you speak to us about that, have you explain it to us. God doesn't want to have a purely mechanical relationship with us where he pushes a button of input and then we produce an output. He wants to have a relationship with you, a love-based relationship. We don't wanna have just a mechanical interaction with God. Now that means that sometimes the Lord's gonna speak to us in ways that aren't clear at first. But when that happens, it's an invitation to press into the Lord, to seek his face, wait on him and anticipate more from him. Verse 17, while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. You have to marvel at God's timing. His providence is absolutely magnificent. But seeing Peter perplexed while these guys stood at the door reminds us that we can't always figure everything out before we minister to people, right? We're to be exercising our faith and exercising our gifts and exercising our Christianity, working it out as we go along, as we grow in understanding, as we grow in wisdom, as the Lord leads us along. Sometimes we're gonna have to walk by faith with less insight, with less clarity about how everything's gonna work out, trusting that God is preparing us and will walk with us. Verse 18, they called out asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. I imagine this was a a uh, tense moment for Simon the Tanner and his family uh, when a cop shows up at your door. It's a bad thing, you know? You probably don't want a Roman soldier showing up with two other Gentiles and saying, is somebody here at your house? Uh-oh, probably a problem. For their part, the Gentiles were being polite, not barging into the Jewish home. They waited at the gate respecting Jewish sensibilities. Verse 19, while Peter was thinking about the vision, the spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Go, get up, go downstairs, accompany them with no doubts at all because I've sent them. Now here the Lord gives Peter some direct clarity, but not as much as he could have, I think. He doesn't give clarity about the vision itself, just about what Peter should do next. Now we should notice this was a very matter of fact interaction with the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't start laughing uncontrollably. He's not doing anything weird. Spirit doesn't possess him. He's not jumping around. He's just 
spoke to Peter like a friend, giving direction. Now, I do find it humorous that God didn't mention, oh, and by the way, the three men down there are Gentiles. Uh, I think this would have been a fun reveal because the way that it's written, it, Peter is in a trance. He's all perplexed and pondering. He's obviously kind of shell-shocked with what's going on. And so the Lord has to come and tell him, hey, three guys are looking for you. He didn't hear them knocking and calling out. He's just trying to figure out what's going on. They say, hey, there's, there's guys down there. Go, go ahead on down there. So he makes his way down from the rooftop and he's like, oh, by guys you meant a, a Roman soldier and two other Gentiles and I just get to go with them. I don't know where we're going or who they are. This is a real problem. I don't know. I think God's got a fun streak to be sure. Verse 21, and Peter went down to the men and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and hear a message from you. Clearly, these three Romans knew that Peter as a Jew would be hesitant to engage with them, and so they immediately start making an appeal to Peter's Jewishness. Hey, Cornelius is a God-fearer. He's cool. We're cool. He's cool. The whole Jewish nation knows he's a good guy. The God of Israel sent an angel for us. And so real Jewish appeal. Peter is being drawn into a greater grace, one that perhaps he should have anticipated, but he hadn't so far. For our part, we want to operate in grace in such a way that people don't feel like they have to beg in order to receive ministry from us. Freely we have received, freely we should give. Verse 23, then Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and set out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. Peter obeyed and he obeyed in a big way, good for him. By inviting in these Gentiles and eating with them, he was violating terms of the Levitical code. But Peter acted with grace and compassion and care and notice they didn't leave right away. Now when Cornelius had his vision, it was about 3 p.m., the servants and the soldier left immediately. Here it's just about noon, so logic dictates they would have even more time to set out before nightfall, right? But rather than set off right away, Peter can tell these guys need rest, they need a meal, they need to refresh and get supplied. So in this moment, the physical need was addressed first before they set off on the spiritual quest, right? They waited till the next morning to set out. And so in the same text, we see God moving in slightly different ways. Peter, you can wait to eat. Peter, set a meal, set a table for these guys. And so I think that's great. It shows that the Lord is working not generically, but specifically and personally, according to each situation. All the more reason that we really need to be led and directed by the Holy Spirit as he works out the incredible providential work of the gospel. Because only the Lord knows in a given moment whether the best way for you to minister in a situation is through a meal or through a gospel message, right? Only the Lord knows, and we need to be led by him. What we do know is that God doesn't want us to turn our backs on the world. He didn't want the Jews to do that. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to go out and minister in grace, not in legalism, even to the difficult, undesirable, prickly, and creepy folks out there. We have a limitless supply of heavenly power available to us. Let's not hinder ourselves with legalistic traditions, human prejudice, or an unwillingness to say yes to God. Instead, let's wait on the Lord, accept his rule, and invite him to direct us into new ventures of faith.